This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? Hi. Uh, well, we've all been sick this week, so been better. Oh, yeah. Right before we started recording, my daughter told me she needs new dance shoes. So yes. I'm a little distracted by thoughts of how to get an Irish dance shoe company to sponsor our podcast. But other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> I just had the opportunity to be on a panel for the podcast Suspect Convictions, and I was on it along with Esther from Once Upon a Crime, which it was great to be on a podcast with her again. As some of you guys remember, she was on our podcast, I want to say in October. And also was Amelia from the Undisclosed podcast, The Killing of Freddie Gray. If you haven't listened to Suspect Convictions, it takes a look at the 1990 murder of a nine-year-old girl and the man who's been twice convicted of her murder. He's going to trial for a third time, and I want to say May, because he won yet another new trial. It is a great podcast, so you guys have to go over there, binge listen to it to catch up, and then you can listen to the episode where I'm on the panel. It's new for Allie and I both to do podcasts where we don't control the scripting and the editing, but we're looking forward to branching out more. And we have a few more opportunities coming up to be on other podcasts, which I know I'm looking forward to. I don't know about you, Allie. It's pretty exciting, especially one of the ones that we most likely had coming up. Which we will not tell you just in case it no. falls through. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that one as well. Tonight, here on Insight, we're going to be discussing the 2006 disappearance of Jennifer Joyce Kessie. For those of you out there who love that we cover obscure cases, you might want to just go ahead and look away now, because I know a lot of you have heard of this case. I haven't seen it covered widely on podcasts, but I know it's been, um, you know, disappeared in 48 hours and, and a couple other shows like that. In January of 2006, Jennifer hung up the phone with her boyfriend one night, and she's not been seen or heard from since. I want to send a big thank you to Jenny for suggesting this case to us. But before we get started, we need to pay the electric bill and or dance shoe bill. So we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor this week, Blue Apron. We're really happy to have Blue Apron back as a sponsor this month. This is a product I use. It is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, regardless of your skill level. Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental United States. And because they ship the exact amount of each ingredient required for the recipe, you're reducing food waste when you use Blue Apron. They've established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, ranchers, all across the United States. These fresh, high-quality ingredients really make a difference. 
one of the meals I'm most looking forward to coming up is the spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. This is something, without a doubt, I would have seen it on a restaurant menu and ordered it. And thanks to the variety, I got to pick this meal. There are new recipes each week, and and you can pick which ones you like or let Blue Apron pick for you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you're never going to get bored. And with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, they promise that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com site. That's S-I-G-H-T. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com site. Blue Apron a better way to cook. Let's go ahead and get started. Jennifer Kessie was born on May 20th, 1981 to Drew and Joyce Kessie. She lived in New Jersey with her parents and her brother until about 1988 when they moved to Florida. Jennifer graduated from college with a degree in finance. She's been described as friendly, responsible, and driven. She worked as a finance manager, and she had only been at that job for a year before she was promoted. So her career was on the way up. And in November of 2005, she decided to put down some roots, and she bought a condo in a nice development in Orlando. And she seems really proud that she was able to buy herself her own place. Right. And you can imagine as you're really starting your career to be able to buy in this condo, it was in a gated condo community with a security guard. It was a really nice place. The condo complex was going under a massive remodel and half of the 400 plus units were not occupied. There were a lot of workers around and some of them even lived in the empty units. The weekend before she went missing, Jennifer, who was 24 at the time, she went for a long weekend trip to St. Croix, which is in the US Virgin Islands, and she went with her boyfriend, Rob. Jennifer and Rob knew each other for about a year. It's not clear how long their relationship had been going for, but the articles I've read, it's given the impression that it was a newer than that relationship. According to Jennifer's family and friends, she was in love, and they went as far as to say that he was the one. Rob lived in Fort Lauderdale, which is about 200 miles away from Orlando. On Sunday, January 22nd, Jennifer and Rob had flown back to Fort Lauderdale from St. Croix. As was the norm when they spent the weekend at Rob's place, Jennifer spent the night with him on the Sunday night before returning to work. While Jennifer was away for the long weekend, her brother and two of his friends, they stayed at her condo. He still lived at home with their parents two hours away, so a free place to stay in Orlando for the long weekend to party, it sounded like a pretty good deal. Jennifer woke up early on Monday, January 23rd, to drive back to Orlando. She left around 6am and she went straight from Rob's, drove the two hours to get to work. She didn't stop at her condo at all that morning. She had a normal day at work and left about 6 p.m. She had a short conversation with her boss as she was leaving. And then by 6.15, she did what she usually did. She called her parents to talk and check in with them. She also talked to her brother, Logan, and Logan said that one of his friends who had stayed at the condo had left his cell phone there. 
and that she could send it in the mail to him, like overnight it so that he could get his phone back. After she talked to her family later that evening, she called Rob and he admits that they did have a disagreement. One of her friends said that the geographic distance was wearing on her having a long weekend with Rob and then having to separate at the end of it again to be two hours apart kind of highlighted the the stress that was putting on her. And also, we shouldn't forget that she'd just gotten back from a vacation the day before. She left Fort Lauderdale by 6, so she probably had woken up at 5 a.m. She drove two hours. She worked all day. Now we're talking 10 p.m. They're probably both really tired. And I think that would have contributed to any argument they had. But Rob says it wasn't a massive argument. It was just a disagreement like couples have. They were both tired, so they ended the call with Jennifer saying she was heading to bed and that they would talk again in the morning. Jennifer was a creature of habit, which I can appreciate. She had a regular routine and left her house for work between 7.30 and 7.45 every morning. Generally, as she was getting ready for the day, she would call or text Rob to say good morning and tell him to have a great day and she loved him, that sort of thing. She started her day earlier than he did, so sometimes these calls and texts, they would be his alarm clock for the day. On Tuesday, January 24, Rob didn't get a call or a text and he found that unusual. Even though they had that disagreement on the phone the night before, he'd expected to hear from her that morning. He called her at 8.30 and her phone went straight through to voicemail. He called her at work and he was told she hadn't arrived yet. Now this was odd because she had a meeting that morning around 9 o'clock and Jennifer was the type that she would call in if she was going to be any more than five minutes late anywhere. But he went on with his usual day at work. He was unaware that anything more was going on with Jennifer, except maybe she was still a little bit mad with him or just really busy. By 11 o'clock, her co-workers became worried because Jennifer hasn't showed up for work and she missed that important meeting without calling. I know with my day job, if you don't show up after 30 minutes after your start time and you don't call in yourself, they will call your cell phone or home phone. And then if they can't get you on that, they'll contact your emergency contact. And that's exactly what happened here. Jennifer's co-worker tried calling her and her phone went to voicemail like it did with Rob. So the decision was made to call her parents and find out if they knew what was going on. I would say that they were her emergency family contact, but her parents knew nothing and they hadn't heard from her either. So of course they try her phone too, but as with the previous attempts, they got her voicemail as well. They then call the condo manager to ask him to go check on her. He said that Jennifer's door was shut and locked and her car was not in its parking space. Joyce then called Jennifer's brother Logan and she was of course by this stage upset and she tells him that Jennifer is missing. They also call police stations and hospitals to see if they can locate Jennifer, but she's nowhere to be found. Drew and Joyce hop in their car and they drive to Jennifer's place in Orlando. Logan also got into his car and he headed to Orlando as well, and he arrives nearly an hour ahead of them. 
like Ellie said, Logan gets there first. So he gets there around noon, probably a little after. He probably did not drive slowly to Orlando. And he went straight to the condo and he found things just like the condo manager had described. He saw some workers sitting in their vehicles in the parking lot and he knocked on their windows to ask them if they saw anything. But they, he said they wouldn't even roll down their windows to talk to him. Drew and Joyce arrive around 1 p.m. and the condo manager lets them into Jennifer's apartment. Walking into Jennifer's apartment, they didn't know what they would find and it turns out they found absolutely nothing. The coffee table in the living room is off to the side, but you know, she had those guests staying there while she was gone for the weekend and probably just didn't put it back in place. Her luggage from the trip was in the hallway, and that tells us that she did arrive home Monday night, which we know from the phone call with her boyfriend, but in the event he was making that up or whatever, we do know she made it home that night because her luggage was in the hallway. The shower walls were damp, the blow dryer was out, her makeup was out, her pajamas were on the bathroom floor, and there was a wet towel on her washer. The bed was unmade and there were some clothes laid out on top of the blankets and her parents said to them it looked like she was, you know, laying out what to wear that day and didn't put away the things she decided not to wear. The clothes she had worn the day before to work were were hanging over a chair. No furniture was disturbed. There were no signs of a break-in. There wasn't a struggle in the condo, at least not one that disturbed anything. I did read that her mother described the condo as being, quote unquote, made clean. What wasn't in the condo? Her purse, her briefcase, her keys, her cell phone, and her iPod. The door was locked, and also missing was the cell phone she was supposed to mail to her brother. Her parents called the police and were initially told that she was an adult, and it was clear to them that this was simply a case of her having an argument with her boyfriend and her leaving to calm down, and she would just return when she was ready. But everyone who knew Jennifer knew she wasn't like that. That if she needed to clear her head from an argument with Rob, what was more like typical Jennifer behaviour would be for her to contact work and her parents before she left. Also, when we go into theories a bit later, for the reasons I just mentioned, We won't go into the old favourite of she walked away to start a new life. That's because this is obviously not what happened here. As you said earlier, Charlie, Jennifer was a strong and independent woman. She was happy with the way her life was going. And she was deeply connected with her family, who she spoke to every day. I mean, when she went away with her boyfriend on that four-day trip, she still called her family three times. If this was a case of her taking off for a break, she would definitely would have contacted her family before leaving. So because the police weren't willing to help, Jennifer's family and friends, they got together and started searching and they handed out flyers. By that evening, when the police realised that this wasn't just a woman walking away, the woods behind her condo were already searched by her friends. A lot of people who had been in and out of her condo, which would have been a concern about destroying evidence, but I think it's understandable why they did that. And really, while it didn't make a difference in this case, Jennifer's friends and family, they immediately jumped into action, they got her name and face out there, 
while possibly witnesses' memories were still fresh. And the risk of evidence being destroyed, it was likely a non-issue as well. And this is because the prevailing theory of whatever happened to Jennifer, it likely happened to her outside of the condo. Jennifer was gone and so was her car. And like we talked about in an earlier episode, if you're ever stranded with your car, stay with your car because a car is easier to find than a person. So the police begin to look for her car. And an early theory was that Jennifer possibly left on Monday night after she got off the phone with Rob to mail the cell phone back to her brother. After all, the cell phone was not in the apartment. So the police went to various mail spots near her home that would have been open that late to see if they could find her car, but they couldn't. And this is as good a time as any to discuss the prevailing theories on her disappearance. The truth is, after Jennifer hung up with her boyfriend, as far as we know, nobody knows what happened. She could have gone missing Monday night or Tuesday morning. The police pinged both her cell phone and the friend's cell phone. Now, you'll read online that both cell phones were turned off at the same time, 1040 on Monday night. However, that's not true. Jennifer's cell phone was turned off at 1040 on Monday night. But the friend's cell phone battery had actually died over the weekend because it hadn't been plugged in. That would be super suspicious if they were both turned off at the same time on the same night, but that's not true. It's also been said that the batteries were likely removed from Jennifer's phone because that made it untraceable. But you'll also hear a lot of debate online, I've looked into this, that... Whether the phone's off, it will ping, or you need to take the battery. Some people say leaving the battery in allows for pinging, but others say turning it off is sufficient. So I don't, I don't know. I, people with experience are saying two different things. Now, I get powering off a cell phone if you want some sleep, especially if you just had an argument with your boyfriend. But Jennifer's parents said she wouldn't have done that. Because Jennifer, like me, uses her cell phone for her alarm clock. And I get that, that she wouldn't normally turn the cell phone off. But as you just said, she had an argument with Rob. We really don't know how big of an argument it was. So she could have been annoyed and just switched off her cell phone so she didn't have to talk to him again. I could definitely see that happen. And then she falls asleep because she's tired and didn't think about turning it back on again. And also the last ping was not from the towers nearest to her condo, but serial undisclosed people already know that cell phone ping technology is not an exact science because while it'll normally be the towers closest to you, you can have your call kicked to your cell phone will be pinging a further away tower if that's what's available. So this cell phone pinging could just honestly be a red herring. One thing that strikes me as the case for her disappearing on Monday night is if you were going to kidnap someone, which would be better after 10 at night or in the morning when others are out leaving for school and work? Which one makes more sense? I'm just not feeling her being taken on the Monday night, though. I know we're going to talk about it a bit later, but there were people in her life that were just a little bit creepy, and she did have concerns about the maintenance workers at the condo. 
I don't think she'd be opening her door for anyone or doing anything like going out to pick up food in the dark or even take the trash out in the dark. I think it's most likely to me that something happened in the morning either before she left the apartment to go to work or before she got into the car to leave to work. Something that I think that supports the Tuesday morning theory is that her makeup was out and there was some clothes out, as you said, like she was trying to pick out an outfit to go to work and then her night clothes were on the floor. I would think that if someone had grabbed her from the condo on the Monday night or if she went out to grab something, I don't think her makeup and clothes would be out as well. To your point, one thing is that Jennifer was extremely safety conscious She carried mace. She carried a whistle. She used what she called, quote, safety calls. If she was going across a parking lot and she felt unsafe, she would call her parents or her boyfriend just to have them on the phone in the event something did happen. So would someone like that, who was exhausted from a trip, upset about her boyfriend, an argument with her boyfriend possibly, leave her house at 10 p.m. to mail a cell phone or get some food? The cell phone could wait till the next morning. Also, with her briefcase being gone, why would she have taken her briefcase to run an errand? So I definitely lean towards the morning, the wet shower, the pajamas. Everything that was missing was were things that she would have taken to go to work. But then I have another problem in that when Jennifer's mother arrived, as I said, she said the condo was very clean. I would love to know how the condo looked to Logan when he arrived that Tuesday morning because would he and his friends really have cleaned it to that extent before they left? Or maybe they hired a cleaning service to come in and clean it, but I I doubt it. And I don't think Jennifer would have come home and cleaned up because she would have been too tired from having to drive from Rob's that morning and then work all day. I'll leave it there from now, but I'll have more thoughts behind that. But it does that doesn't make sense either. She left her bed unmade. She left her pajamas on the bathroom floor. She had left a wet towel on her washer. I'm not going to say she's a slob, but she wasn't the person who was cleaning up as soon as she went. She probably came home in the evening and did a pickup from the whole day. She had no problem leaving her stuff out. So her apartment being quite tidy... That, that's something that doesn't fit for me either. One thing about the cell phone being powered down on Monday night, if she did power it down and she left for work Tuesday morning or got up, why didn't she turn it back on? You know, we've always talked about ca- every case has pieces that don't really fit. And for me, the, the cell phone powered down, being pa- not powered back up that morning, the apartment being areas being kind of slobby and other areas being really tidy, those pieces don't fit. The prevailing theory did become, and it remains, that Jennifer made it out of her apartment, possibly to her car, though I think that's unlikely, and we'll talk about that later, before being abducted. Though there are a lot of people who are open to the idea that she was taken the night before. Also, had she, if she made it to her car whether she was taken in the parking lot or somewhere along her drive is also unclear. No one has come forward at all seeing her in the parking lot or carjacked along the way. On Wednesday, searches continued, as did the police investigation, of course. Now, Orlando has a lot of water, 
it is in central Florida, so away from the coast. But if you look at Google Maps, you'll see that Orlando is really just patches of land in between lakes and ponds. So waterways were searched on foot with divers and by helicopter. The wooded areas were also searched and the searching would continue for years. But despite all of this, no new information came in. Also on Wednesday, it brought the media attention to the case. The media played a big role in getting out the details of Jennifer's disappearance and the search for both her and her black Chevy Malibu. This media spotlight would continue for years. Now, a lot of credit goes to one of Jennifer's friends, who was a television reporter, and also to Jennifer's parents for just saying yes. They said yes to every interview, whether it was on TV or in newspaper or on the radio. I imagine there were days where they just couldn't imagine having to go through it all again, but they just kept going. And on Thursday morning, it all paid off. Someone called in to the police around 8 o'clock that morning that Jennifer's car had been parked in their apartment complex's visitor's parking lot for two days. This apartment complex was just over a mile east to where Jennifer's condo was. The car was parked a few spaces over from the complex's pool. Finding the car was a big lead, but it was also a major source of anxiety. Her family and friends had no idea, like when they walked into the condo, what would be found in the car. I can imagine everyone holding their breath as they opened the trunk, to be honest. But Jennifer was not in her car. And they took Rob with them to open up the boot of the car to, I guess, firstly see his reaction as well as to see what was in there. I can't even imagine standing there waiting for that as... A loved one, as a stranger, as an investigator, that had to have been a very intense moment. Because you don't know. You don't know. The main thing the car itself tells us is that robbery was not the motive. While the cell phones, briefcase, purse, none of that was ever found, in the car was a DVD player, a brand new one, in plain sight, in the back seat, and it was untouched. Of course, her car was abandoned, and that was the most valuable piece of property. There's never been any activity on her bank accounts or credit cards. The dumping of the car and the leaving of an expensive item behind, it it shows that Jennifer was the target. It also means whomever parked the car was either involved in her disappearance or had contact with the person who was. It wasn't just someone who took the opportunity and hopped in a running car to steal it. This is someone who purposely moved the car somewhere. Because if someone just spotted the car and decided to take it for a joyride, they're taking the DVD player as well. Right. The car was light on forensics. It appears it was wiped down with the only whole fingerprints found anywhere in the car were Jennifer's. It has been reported that a small amount of DNA was found, but I'm under the impression it was not a complete profile. And there was one latent fingerprint found, and latent prints are the ones we leave behind anywhere, as opposed to what we call patent print, which is left behind in, say, blood or dirt or paint, which will come up in a little bit. But they've not been able to match this fingerprint to anybody. 
What seemed like a huge break came through when they realised the complex had two security cameras in the vicinity. The first camera captured Jennifer's car being parked at noon on the day she went missing. The car pulled into the parking spot. It backed up a bit and then pulled back into the spot. My guess is that the driver was possibly straightening the car out in the space. The driver then sat in the car for around 35 seconds before getting out. Again, we don't know exactly why the driver sat there. I mean, maybe this is the time where the driver wiped down the car. Maybe he made a quick call to a partner to let him know he was there. Or possibly someone was entering or exiting a nearby apartment or just walking past and he wanted to make sure the coast was clear. A canvas of the residents has never turned up anyone who remembers seeing anything. But the car was parked on a Tuesday at noon. Many adults would have been at work and the kids would have been at school. Also on this video, you can see the driver exiting the car and he casually walks away. It hasn't been confirmed that the driver is a male, but for the sake of the story, we are going to say a he basically because and that's the way it seems people are leaning towards. The second camera was focused on the pool and in the background, the driver was caught walking outside of the pool fence down the street. And can I say this surveillance footage has given me nightmares. When we're researching, when I first saw it, it's, it's chilling. One of the things that really haunts me is the luck the person had in walking down that street because this sounded like a huge break. They zoomed in, they enhanced the video only to find out that the face was obscured. Now this camera wasn't actually taking video. We're saying video, but there were actually still photos taken every three seconds. And he appears in three of these photos and in each one, his face is blocked by a fence post. There's absolutely no way he could have timed this. There's no way he could have known when the camera was snapping and when it wasn't. The video was sent to NASA for enhancement. It's been analyzed by the FBI. And unfortunately, he honestly just got that lucky. His face is never shown. What we do know is that he is wearing a white shirt a white pair of pants, and dark shoes. There is some debate that maybe he's wearing a hat. Maybe he has his hair pulled back. It's very hard to tell. I've also seen reports that he may have been holding a phone to his ear. You you read all different interpretations. Exactly. The white clothing has led to a lot of speculation that possibly he was a worker, like a painter. They often wear all white, but other people like those who work in bakeries or butcher shops or in restaurant kitchens, they also often wear all white. Allie and I have both seen the theory online that um, cricket players wear all white uniforms. It's, It's not a very common sport here. The driver's height is estimated to be 5'3 to 5'5" which is short for a man, the average height of a man in the U.S. of any ethnicity is 5'9". This leads some people to lean towards the person being a woman, but Florida also has a fairly significant Hispanic population, 
the third largest in the U.S. The average height of a man from, say, Cuba or Mexico is closer to 5'5". So this could have been a shorter-than-average man, a man of average height for his ethnicity, or a woman. Basically, it could have been anybody. I know that there's a lot of dispute on the height and what it could mean, but I don't think it it really means anything. All we do know is that Jennifer definitely wasn't the last person to drive the car because the seat was moved forward in a different position to where she would normally have to have it due to her height because she was tall. People online will dispute the height due to the perception of his stride length and the size of his feet, but I haven't seen anyone show their math work here. No one that I saw online calculated the angle of the camera, the length between the fence posts, that sort of thing. Because NASA and the FBI were involved in looking at the video, I trust their trigonometry and their estimated height on him. It's probably not as rusty as my trigonometry. I give you, I think his stride looks pretty long for that height. And his feet do look big. And his feet do look big. It could be a shadow. It could be the angle. I'm just, because they had scientists analyzing it, I'm going to just trust that they took all that into consideration. And again, I don't think his height is really that great of a clue. So we spent all that time on something I don't think means anything. So why would this person be so careless to end up on video anyway? Was he arrogant, knowing that he probably wouldn't get caught if he was seen, which would mean he probably wasn't local? Orlando has a huge vacation. It's a huge vacation destination. It's where Disney World is. Maybe it was someone passing through. Maybe he just didn't have ties to the community where someone would recognize him. Like we said, some of these workers were migrant workers that were living in the condo while they worked that job before they moved to the next one. But it's also possible he didn't know the cameras were there or anticipate them. This apartment complex was not was not in as nice of an area as Jennifer's complex, so he may have assumed they were less likely to have them. The police brought in tracking dogs. The hope was that the dogs would either pick up Jennifer's scent or help lead them to her or the dogs would pick up the driver's scent and lead them on the path that he walked. Well, one of the dogs did pick up a scent and followed it 1.2 miles back to Jennifer's apartment, and he stopped in the parking lot. So does this mean that the person who dumped Jennifer's car walked back to the condo? I mean, why would he go back to the condo, though? Again, this is something we'll just have to keep in the back of our minds when we start talking about the suspect. But herein lies the problem I was talking about earlier. We know that the abductor was methodical in ensuring that everything was wiped down in the car before he got out. And that's assuming we're talking about the same person here. But going back to Jennifer's spotless apartment and the wet shower and wet towel, this now gets me questioning the Tuesday morning abduction. What if someone she knew came by and she let him in on the Monday night? Or someone had gotten in somehow and he was hiding in her apartment waiting for the perfect moment. What if her abduction happened on Monday night and then the abductor came back and cleaned everything up and then he showered himself to make sure there was nothing of Jennifer left on him? That would explain why the battery was possibly taken out of the phone or the phone was turned off that her mother swears was never turned off. The information on the dog scent that we have access to 
is really only what Allie said, that a dog picked up a scent from the car and led back to the condo parking lot. From what I've learned about tracking dogs is that you want the handler to not know anything so they don't accidentally lead the dog. And you also want a second dog to come in and replicate the results. I don't know that either of these conditions were met, so I don't feel like we can truly evaluate this information without knowing more details about what the tracking dog or dogs or handler actually did. The team investigating Jennifer's disappearance met with the authorities in charge of another high-profile missing persons case to look for links, Tara Grinstead. For those who don't know, Tara Grinstead was a PhD candidate, a high school history teacher, and a former beauty pageant winner who went missing exactly three months before Jennifer in the neighboring state of Georgia. And there are some similarities here. However, they walked away from comparing notes, not finding a connection. The leading theory at the time in the Tara Grinstead case was that she likely knew her abductor. But Jennifer's case truly could be a stranger abduction. Even though they're rare, there's a lot more signs in Jennifer's case having pointed to that. In February of 2017, there were two arrests made in Tara's case. Both men had been students at the high school where Tara taught. It's believed she interrupted one of the men burglarizing her home and the other assisted in disposing of her body. It's still early. They've only just been arrested, so we can't call it case closed quite yet. But if this is who killed Tara, they were right that it was someone familiar to her and very unlikely involved in Jennifer's disappearance. Three years after Jennifer's disappearance, an inmate named David Ross, he claimed to have information on what happened. Ross had murdered a woman in her home and has since received the death penalty. His information was of the jailhouse informant type. He overheard other inmates discussing the crime, but he claimed the police had botched the case so badly that he couldn't trust them and he would only speak to one person. And that person was Jennifer's father, Drew. Now, in case we haven't made it clear yet, Joyce and Drew would do anything to find their daughter. And that includes going to talk to a murderer who may have some information. We don't know what he told Drew, but Drew has said that he knew within 10 minutes that Ross was full of it and that he didn't have any idea what happened to his daughter. But Ross wasn't the only person who claimed to have a lead and didn't. Jennifer's parents were approached directly with false leads. One detective characterised these false leads as re-victimisation of the family, which I think is the perfect way to put it. I know Joyce said at one point someone approached her in the grocery store and said she had information, and all Joyce said was, call 911 and give it to them. And I guess it turned out the woman was trying to get her ex-boyfriend caught up in the investigation. It was It was just truly terrible people using this as as their own moment to get back at someone to try to get a reward or just to get attention and I guess that's one downside with them being so present in the media they are very recognizable so it does make them more likely to be approached in public exactly now that we've laid out pretty much what we know about the case, let's discuss the theories and the people who have been looked at. 
And of course, the first person they looked at was Rob, Jennifer's boyfriend. In the U.S., two-thirds of violent attacks against women are by someone they know. So it's obvious that Rob would be the first suspect. And he did everything they asked of him. He gave DNA. He was interviewed multiple times. He took and passed at least two polygraphs. They looked at his cell phone records, and the pings confirmed that he, or at least his phone, remained two hours away from Orlando the entire time. But his workplace confirmed that he was there during the day, two hours away. And Jennifer's family, for what it's worth, they do not think Rob had anything to do with it. Nearly 11 years later, they're still in touch with him. Her mom even expressed concern for him because he was having trouble moving on. They absolutely don't think it was him. Rob is more or less cleared here. So the next place to look really is with ex-boyfriends. And the weekend that Jennifer went away with Rob, we said her brother stayed at the condo and he had two friends there. One was the guy who left his phone and the other was someone Jennifer used to date. This turned out not to have been the greatest idea. He apparently wasn't over Jennifer yet, and then he spent the weekend at her place while she was on a romantic getaway with her new boyfriend. A little awkward. Monday night, which was either the night she went missing or the night before she went missing, he was seen drinking at a bar pretty near her condo, and it was reported that he was upset. Did he go to her apartment that night? I mean, she would have let him in. She let him stay there for the weekend. You know, there wouldn't have been a break-in. Or possibly did she leave to meet him somewhere if he called her upset? I'm assuming they looked at the phone records to rule this in or out, whether or not he contacted her that night. Personally, I don't think there's a whole lot here, except that he was upset and near her condo. There haven't been any accusations that he had been violent in their relationship or that he had been stalking her. He was having trouble getting over her, but he wasn't following her around or continually sending her messages. He was upset that a woman he had feelings for moved on with a new man before he was moving on. I know the police have looked into him. I would need more for me to think he was really a viable suspect. Agreed. Maybe some long-winded emails or just something showing that he was still obsessed. Or him regularly texting her, asking where she was and what she was doing. Something. Something, yeah. After Jennifer was missing three or four days, the police went to her work to interview people. There were a few people they wanted to talk to specifically because they had heard she was friends with or maybe she had some connection that was beyond just being normal co-workers. One of these people was a married co-worker named Johnny and he was romantically interested in Jennifer. And since Jennifer didn't date co-workers and she didn't date married men, she wasn't interested in pursuing something with him. But he wasn't taking no for an answer, and it got to a point that Jennifer contacted her parents for advice. As we said, Jennifer was very close to her family, and she talked to them about everything. They told her to have lunch with him in a work setting, like a cafeteria, and just have it all out to tell him that she wasn't interested in dating him and he needed to back off. As far as her parents could tell, Jennifer did do this. Now, turning someone down who wanted to date her is one thing, but it's not deeming evidence. Well, that wasn't until another co-worker who sat next to Jennifer reported some odd behaviour. 
He said Johnny complained like a jealous boyfriend that Jennifer went away with her actual boyfriend that weekend. On Monday, it's claimed he confronted Jennifer about this trip. And then on Tuesday, when Jennifer didn't show up to work, he showed up late and he was allegedly agitated. Johnny also allegedly told this co-worker on the Wednesday that wherever Jennifer was, she had probably been eaten by alligators. In all fairness, though, the person reporting this filed harassment complaints against Johnny and ended up losing his job after the conflict. He did repeat some of this to the police before the harassment complaint, but I'm not sure how much was told to the authorities at the time and what his relationship with Johnny was at the time and how much was told after the fact. I do think that if Jennifer was taken by someone she knows, it would make Monday night disappearance make more sense to me. You know, the meeting someone, maybe someone showed up out of her door. She wouldn't have she wouldn't have left her condo or opened the door to a stranger on Monday night. But if it was one of these people that she did know, she probably even would have willingly left with them, not knowing what would happen later. Well, I could see her answering the door to someone she knows. They say, let's go for a drive, let's grab something to eat, and she goes with them. Backing up a bit to the very beginning of the episode, we mentioned that the condo complex was under construction and there were a lot of workers on the site, so obviously they had to be looked into. Jennifer had previously reported to friends and family that the workers made her uncomfortable. They would leer at her and catcall Police investigated them, but a lot of them were temporary workers. They were only in the area for the job, and some were undocumented workers who were working in the U.S. illegally, so there were no records to be sure that they were all talked to. There were delays in searching the condos, as many were privately owned, and the complex couldn't give permission for those searches. The police did a sting operation on the painting company the complex used, but nothing really came of that. Jennifer also had an incident shortly after she moved in in November. She needed some paint on the walls touched up. She called her boyfriend and was complaining about the painters. They were too slow. They were doing a sloppy job, that sort of thing. But she was doing it while they were there in the room. Her boyfriend told her that she shouldn't keep talking and that they probably could understand her, and that makes me assume they were Spanish-speaking. I've read that two workers who had been in her condo were investigated and cleared. I haven't seen it explicitly stated that these were the same men as the painters, but we do know they were in in her condo, so it probably was them that they're talking about. If a worker or multiple workers were involved, that would explain the scent from the car right back to the condo parking lot that the dog followed. And going more into that, it doesn't have to be the person who dumped her car doesn't need to be the person who actually abducted her. It is possible that the person who abducted her then came back, maybe paid one of these maintenance workers, say, $100 to go move the car somewhere else, which could explain why it was only moved a mile away so then they could get back to work. They may have no knowledge of why they moved the car or who owned the car or anything around the circumstances of what happened. It could have just been a quick payday to do something and make a little bit of side money. And they would be less likely to ask questions. 
or talk to authorities. One thing that bothers me is that if the person who parked her car did in fact walk back to the condo, that person got there while her brother and parents were there, desperately trying to figure out what happened. And just that thought of them crossing paths like that, I don't know, that just really kind of hit me in the gut when I was reading. One theory along these lines is that because Jennifer had those regular habits, maybe she was being stalked by one of these workers, or possibly maybe a couple of the workers. When she left the apartment and locked the door, she likely never made it to her car. There were landscapers outside and none of them saw Jennifer leave. She could have been dragged into one of the unoccupied rooms where she was trapped and couldn't leave. The hallways and stairwells of her complex did not have security cameras and they did look, looking at photos, quite dark and isolated. And the workers there would have known that. After being attacked and murdered, she was left in the empty condo until the attacker could move her car. She was then transported out of the condo in another vehicle when no one was around. It could be argued why was the car then moved at all? Because then the killer or killers are risked being seen or leaving behind some evidence. But in moving the car, it then leads the police investigation away from the condo and allows them to later move Jennifer without them having to worry about the police finding her before that. And honestly, I believe whether if this was a worker or some other guy, she was a gorgeous, smart, and by all reports, lovely young woman. She would have gotten a lot of male attention and some of that would have been unwanted. So a stalker doesn't necessarily have to be a maintenance worker. Possibly it was just some guy who had taken a like to her and he was watching her. I just think the fact that she was a creature of habit, I think that maybe it worked against her. Because she kept a certain routine, she left the same time every day and did the same things, it did make her an easy target. And maybe her going away for that long weekend with Rob, maybe it was the tipping point that made her stalker react. Jennifer didn't report being stalked or being harassed, but the truth is... People can be stalked for extended periods of time and honestly have no idea. As I said, though, she was an attractive girl. She may have been used to men looking at her. Maybe he wasn't an obvious sending her creepy letters and approaching her type stalker. Right. And he could have been someone who blended in at the condo complex, whether he lived there, he worked there. It could have been someone she was used to seeing in the background and she wasn't aware that he was watching her in that way. Or it could have been a friend of a friend or someone she just had passing small talk with at the supermarket or at the gym. We don't have proof that Jennifer isn't alive somewhere. And along the lines of the workers is that one or more of them had connections to human trafficking and that Jennifer was taken for that reason. Florida at the time had one of the highest rates of human trafficking in the U.S. But the truth is, most human trafficking victims are not snatched from their cars or from outside of their gated condo complexes like Jennifer was. Most human trafficking victims are vulnerable. They're easy to control 
And often people who won't have hundreds of missing persons posters up within hours of going missing. Runaways are a huge target. And that's why I I get upset when I see someone being dismissed. Oh, they're, they probably ran away. They are just at, they're in a, such a vulnerable state and at such high risk that just saying, oh, well, they ran away, dismissing them, that, that really bothers me. And people who are trafficking humans know this. They're forcing these runaways or these kids who are living on the street, and I say kids, some are teens into their 20s, even older. They're forcing them into this, into this lifestyle, this sex work. They're controlling them, often through drugs. But they are trying to live under the radar and away from society's eye. They do not want the attention kidnapping a middle-class white woman will bring them. Now, can it happen? I'm sure it can. I don't want to dismiss that any more than other people dismiss runaways. But I have concerns that when we're worrying about human trafficking as a kidnap-off-the-street scenario, we're looking away from the way that it usually happens. It's, it's more like sexual molestation in that the victims are often groomed. They know the person. They believe they're going to be taken care of. Some of them think the trafficker is actually their boyfriend. Jennifer would not have been a likely target for human trafficking. It could have happened, but it's really low on the likelihood list. And as you said, she was a upper middle class woman who had a stable job. She had friends. She had a person. She had people looking that would look for her. She There are easier targets out there to take. Well, partly due to the investigation into Jennifer's disappearance, Florida passed the Jennifer Kessie and Tiffany Sessions Missing Persons Act. And for those who don't know, Tiffany Sessions was a 20-year-old college student from Tampa, Florida. In 1989, she left her apartment to go for a walk and she never returned. And like in Jennifer's disappearance, the police did not immediately start investigating. It is believed that Tiffany was the victim of Paul Eugene Rowles, and Rowles died in prison in 2013, having been convicted of one murder, and he was about to be charged with a second. In his note about his victims, there appeared to be a coded entry about Tiffany, and that her usual walking route went past the construction site where he was working at the time. The act, like the Brendan Swanson Act, it expanded what police can do in the cases of missing adults. It essentially added to the existing laws for missing children. Any adult under the age of 26 and any missing adult of any age who police believe are in danger, they were to be handled the way the state already handled mandated missing child cases, which ultimately provides more resources for these cases. We want to leave you with some information about Jennifer. At the time she disappeared, she was 24 years old. She would be turning 36 this May. And there is an age progression photo out there. We will definitely put it up on our Facebook page. She is 5'8 and about 125 pounds with sandy blonde hair and green eyes. She has two birthmarks. One is a non-raised strawberry mark that was faded on her ribs and one on the middle finger of her left hand. 
She has one tattoo, a small shamrock on her left hip. She has a cleft chin and scars on her left elbow. And if you know anything, you can call 1-800-423-TIPS. It's 1-800-423-8477. Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Facebook. We have a group and a page. And insight is two words that will help you find us better on there. You can talk to me directly on Twitter at InsightfulPod. Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod. You can email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Any comments you want to make in private or feedback you want to give us or show suggestions that you don't want to post out on our page, email is the best way to get those to us. We answer every email we get. It sometimes takes us a day or two, but you will be hearing back from one of us. We have a great website called insightpod.com. There are articles up there. There are all sorts of all sorts of extras out there. Currently, if you go out there, you can take a poll for our one-year birthday episode in May. That closes on April 7th. So please go out and vote which episode. We, we have six choices out there. You can vote for which one you're most interested in. I will not tell you guys now, but we're actually pretty surprised that that one's pretty solidly in the lead. So go ahead and go out there and vote. We're also on Patreon if you want to make an ongoing donation to the show. We have two bonus episodes up on the 15th of every month. One of those comes down and a new one goes up. So every single month we put out a new bonus episode for you guys on Patreon. And we also have other rewards, stickers, magnets, t-shirts, that sort of thing. So we will see you guys in one week. Bye.